When I was about 15, my parents went away on holidays for two weeks. Uh, They took my two younger brothers and went to Western Australia and they left my 17-year-old brother and myself at home for two whole weeks. Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself. What's wrong with these people? Why would they leave two teenage boys at home alone for two weeks? Well, it's funny because that's exactly what my brother and I were thinking as well. We thought it was a little strange that they were doing that, but I guess my parents were just a little more trusting than I would have been. Now, we knew that they were going to be gone for a few weeks. We knew exactly when they were leaving, but we didn't know exactly when they were coming home. We were just told roughly within a few days of when it would be. Now, we knew that the way that we would show our gratitude to them, the way that we would show our thanks for them trusting us, was to make sure that the house was not just still standing, but actually intact and clean and tidy when they came back home. We knew that when they came home, we wanted the place to look as good as possible. In fact, there's two words in that Bible passage, right at the very beginning, verse 28, that I think kind of describe how my brother and I wanted to feel when my parents came home. Those two words are confident and unashamed. See, that was what we wanted to do. We wanted to make sure that the house looked right for my parents. We wanted to say thank you for the trust that you've actually shown to us. What John's talking about in this passage is being prepared, being prepared for the return of Jesus. And that's what it starts with, isn't it? Verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So John's point's really simple, isn't it? Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus returns, How will you appear before him? How will you feel about the return of Jesus? John says this ought to be a great motivation for us to live a godly life. Now don't misunderstand what John's saying here. He's not saying, have you been good enough to go to heaven? That's definitely not what he's saying. He's not saying, have you done enough to earn your salvation? Now John stressed all the way through this letter that we are forgiven only by what God has done for us in Jesus. We're made right with God because of what God has done for us. John's question is, if you know that Jesus is coming again, then what kind of life are you going to live while you're waiting for him to come again? Jesus' return, John says, ought to be a great motivation for us to live a godly life. But the next motivation comes there at the beginning of chapter 3, those first two verses verses that we read out right at the beginning of church. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. This is uh, Bill Gates. Uh, you may know this man. He's uh, made himself rather wealthy uh, through computer software that doesn't work terribly well, called Microsoft. Um, in fact, his personal wealth is estimated at somewhere around $66 billion. 
that's a that's a lot of money. That means that if he wanted to give money to every single person in Australia, he can afford to give them more than two and a half thousand dollars each and still have money in his own bank account. Sixty-six billion dollars. But I want you to imagine that Bill Gates turns up at your door tomorrow morning and says, "Look, I've been giving it some thought, and I want to include you in my will. I, I want you to share in my fortune. I want you." to have my inheritance. I mean, that would be a remarkable thing, wouldn't it? One of the wealthiest men in the world, $66 billion in personal wealth, and he wants to share it with you. But John's saying that God's actually done something even more extraordinary than that. Look at verse number one again. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That's not what we might be. That's what we are if we have our trust in Jesus. We are God's children, heirs of what God has. The creator of the universe has said, I want you in my family. I want you to share in everything that I have. I want you to share in my inheritance. See, if you know what it is to be forgiven by God... If you know what it is to have your trust in Jesus, then you are a co-heir with Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Now, we've got to make sure that we never cease to be amazed by that. It really is an extraordinary thing that God has done for us. We should never take this for granted. We should never see this as a small thing that God has done. John wants to say in that verse, be amazed, be very amazed by what it is that God has done, by the love that God has lavished on us. I always feel a little bit sorry for my son Ben because every time these family photos are taken out, people always say, gee, he looks a lot like you. Now, frankly, I can't see it. I think he's actually quite a good-looking kid, so I'm not sure what all this fuss is about. But everyone manages to see this, the family resemblance. Again, I, I can't quite see it myself, but other people seem to be able to see it. But as Juliana was saying in the kids' talk, that's also what this Bible passage is about, isn't it? It's about bearing the family likeness. It's actually about looking like one of the members of God's family. People should be able to see who our Heavenly Father is, not by our physical characteristics, but by the attitudes that we have, the values that we have, the priorities that we have, the sort of life that we live. They ought to be able to see us and recognise our Heavenly Father because of the characteristics that are at work in our life. Go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 29. Uh, John says that one of the family characteristics will be righteousness. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right is born of him. We should be righteous people. We should be people who seek to do the right thing. It should be a noticeable characteristic. We shouldn't be known as one of those people who always seeks to try and push the boundary or, or, or do the wrong thing if you can get away with it. We should be people who are known as righteous, who are seeking to do the right thing. That's what Jesus was like. So his brothers and sisters ought to look like that as well. We should bear the family likeness. 
And, and then the next thing John says is there in verse number 2. Dear children, now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. I suppose it's similar to being righteous, isn't it? If we know who Jesus is and we know that we are part of that family, then we seek to be pure in the lives that we live. And that purification is going to be an ongoing process in our lives, isn't it? Righteousness and purity, they're things that you show in your life if you're part of that family. Righteousness and purity, they're things that we do because we know that we are God's children. They're the characteristics that we ought to possess because we are God's children. Now, John says that there is something that's a character trait that uh, the family of Jesus ought not to have, something that they ought not to be showing in their lives. Righteousness and purity are two things that they should show. But go down and have a look at verse number 4, chapter 3. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And then jump down to verse number 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, these are a couple of verses that have actually brought about a little confusion in the Christian world and in Christian circles. Uh, There have been plenty of Christian groups throughout the history of the church who've wanted to advocate some kind of sinless perfection in the Christian life. Uh, they thought that if you are a Christian, well, you ought to never, ever sin again. Um, a couple of little examples of that. Uh, monasteries have always been an attempt to attain that sinless perfection in life. Uh, this is a monastery in Europe that tried to cut itself off from the rest of the world so that the monks that are living there won't have to deal with sin and sinless people, uh, sinful people. So if they can hide themselves away, they won't have to come in contact with sin and therefore will be able to attain that sort of sinless perfection in their lives. Another group, the Quakers, had the idea that once we become Christians, we can actually attain a sinless state of innocence, that we can be just like Adam and Eve before the fall, before sin entered into the world. And we can even be more steadfast than Adam and Eve because Christians never need to sin ever again. But that's not what John's talking about in this passage. I think the NIV actually gives us a helpful translation. Go back to verse number 6 and have a look at what John says. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin 
has either seen him or known him. And then jump down to verse 9, a similar translation there. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. John's not saying that we will never ever sin again once we become Christians. He's not saying that we will live that perfect, sinless life at the point at which we start trusting in Jesus. I mean, he's already said this at the beginning of the letter, hasn't he? Oh, missed the verse. Chapter 2, verse 1, if you turn back in your Bible to there. Chapter 2, verse 1, look at what John says. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, John knows that Christians will keep on sinning. It's not ideal that we will sin. It's not what God wants. But sadly, it will happen. God knows that while ever we're in this body, sadly, we will continue to sin. What John's talking about here is people who continually sin. Uh, What he's talking about is the people who habitually sin. He's talking about the person who claims to be a Christian, yet doesn't think it matters how they actually live their life. John wants to say that that person really ought to have a good hard look at themselves. They need to have a serious think about whether or not they can make that claim to be a Christian. See, if you know that you're doing the wrong thing, if you're unrepentant about doing the wrong thing, if you continue to sin or go on sinning, as John says, then John says people like that really shouldn't make the claim to be a Christian. They shouldn't claim to know God if they have no desire to live the ways that God would want them to live. See, John wants to say that sin is serious. Sin's why Jesus came into the world in the first place. It was sin that put Jesus on the cross. Have a look at chapter 3, verse number 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Jesus came to die for our sins. John says that in him, in Jesus, there is no sin. That's what Jesus looks like. That's what God wants us to look like. And that's what we ought to be like, demonstrating that family likeness. See, it is sad, isn't it, when we, when we treat sin lightly, when we treat it as though it doesn't really matter how we live. There are some sins in our lives that, that we're a little too close to, a little too familiar with, a little too friendly with. And John says we shouldn't treat those sins as a small thing. He wants to say that we ought to take sin seriously. Jesus suffered and died for our sins. Our sin is not something that we should treat lightly. Then the big question in all of this is, do you bear the family likeness? That's the question that John wants to ask, isn't it? Do you look like a member of God's family? Not here on Sunday, 
We all do here on Sunday. But what about during the rest of the week? Do you look like a member of God's family then? Are people able to see the family likeness in the attitudes and the characteristics of your life? Do they see the resemblance that you have between your heavenly father and the resemblance that you have to Jesus in the way that you live? And what about your attitudes towards sin? It's easy to identify sin in the lives of other people, isn't it? These are just the things that other people are doing wrong. But can you identify those areas of sin in your own life? Can you see where the family likeness isn't there, but it ought to be? Or let me ask you the question that John asked right at the beginning of this passage. Jesus is coming again. Will you be confident and unashamed at his appearing? Would there be areas in your life where you'd feel embarrassed if Jesus were to return today? What are the things in your life that aren't fitting for someone who has their trust in Jesus? Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty in all of this. I'm trying to help you through the questions that John wants to ask. And John's intention in this passage is not to make you feel guilty. It's actually to give you a positive encouragement to live a godly life. He wants to say, God has has lavished his love on you. Our sins have been forgiven by what Jesus has done. We're waiting for Jesus to return again. They're all positive encouragements to live that godly life. Because of all that, we should be seeking to bear the family likeness. Not so that we can be part of God's family, but because we're already part of God's family through Jesus. Not so that God will love us more, but because God has already lavished his love on us. Not so that we can find favour with God, but because we already have a relationship with God through Jesus. Not to earn our way to heaven, but because we know that we're headed to heaven and we're waiting for Jesus to come again. I think verses 2 and 3 are the verses that sum up what John's talking about in this passage. And let me finish with these words. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Let's pray.